Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. How are you doing? I'm good. Glad we're doing this. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one today. Today, we're going to be talking about something that's certainly near and dear to your heart and Mm. tangentially to mine as well. I'm personally very grateful that going to therapy doesn't carry the social stigma that it once did. It should go without saying that seeking help for an issue that someone believes is impacting their quality of life is nothing other than wise and often pretty courageous as well. Of course, therapy can be profoundly helpful for acute issues. For instance, exploring and maybe even unraveling some of the tendencies a person might have related to our series on pathology, or seeking help for an addictive tendency, or working through a specific issue in a relationship. But one of the things I think that sometimes gets lost in our conversation culturally on therapy is that sometimes you just need to talk to somebody. And that's sort of what we explored in our previous episode with Lori Gottlieb, the author of Maybe You Should Talk to Someone. Therapy can be extremely useful as just a general tool for personal exploration. And there doesn't have to be something wrong with you, using the air quotes there, in order to get into the room. So as a practicing clinician for, I think it was over 30 years, 35 years, kind of depends on where you count from, Rick's obviously had a lot of people wander through his office. And I personally have had many conversations with people, particularly recently, particularly with friends who know that I'm engaged in this kind of self-helpy, mental healthy world, who say something to me along the lines of, Forrest, I'm thinking about talking to a therapist, but I really don't know where to start. And this series of episodes that we're going to do here is what I was hoping would be my answer to that question in the future. So we really want to go through the whole therapeutic process here in terms of the soup to nuts of it, starting from the very, very beginning of how you go about selecting somebody to work with, all the way through what happens in the room. We're probably going to be breaking this into multiple episodes. And in the first part here, I want to get into the different kinds of therapy, how you choose a therapist. So does that sound good? Sounds good. And I was actually just doing the arithmetic there, Forrest. How long have I actually been working with people within the frame of licensed practice, before which I did a lot of human potential things and coaching and so forth. We can count that as well. But actually, I market at the point that I began my PhD program, which occurred a month before you were born. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. your entire life, mm-hmm. when it maps to your life, I've been in the formal frame of being a therapist. Initially, the first few years, accumulating hours toward my license and then being licensed, I think from 1992 onward. So that's as long as I've been doing it. So basically, Mm. if you want to know how long I've been operating within the frame of formal licensure as a psychological assistant and then then a licensed psychologist, it's been as long as you've been alive, which is, if we can say, 32 years. Yeah. So it's a really good metric for that. It's your whole life. Yeah. That's been my experience. And I I think about it often, the ways in which literally from the time I was born, as you're saying here, I've been in this milieu of your work (laughs) and and the work that you do with other people and kind of being raised in that context has been a very, I, I think, probably unique experience. But Ahead of everything else, I think that you were really great, actually, about not therapizing, uh, as I used to say jokingly, both uh, myself and my sister, when we were growing up. So uh, I think I got most of the positive elements of it while avoiding some of the potential complications. Good. So 
Let's say, theoretically, that someone is listening to this and they're thinking to themselves, I've had this background experience. I've kind of thought about maybe going to talk to someone, but I have a lot of uncertainty about it. I don't really know what I'm getting myself into. I don't really know the kind of person I should be seeking out. I think about the kind of Hollywood presentation of therapy of, you know, the grizzled person from central casting and then the person just lying on the couch. So I guess my first question is, is that what therapy actually looks like? And what are the different kinds of therapy that somebody could do? Right. I want to call out two therapists in the movies that people may have seen as reasonably good approximations Mm -hmm. of what therapy is really like with therapists who, for me at least, were, were frankly quite admirable and heroic. One is a therapist in Ordinary People, which is a profound, powerful film, Ordinary People. The other is the therapist played by Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting, also there too. Really reasonably close to it. I mean, obviously gussied up for film and kind of sped up for film, but you really got a sense of uh, something that was done with quality and, and heart in both those roles. So one way I think about it is that during our hunter-gatherer past, people sat around the fire and they talked about stuff. If we all sat around the fire more and talked with each other more, a lot of people like me would no longer be able to make a living. And there is a useful distinction, I think, between therapy and therapeutic. Mm. I've had conversations with people that were very therapeutic who were not therapists at all, including taxi cab drivers from Ethiopia or Syria or some part of the world. And they would just make a passing comment about something that really landed and had a therapeutic benefit. Or you watch a TV show. Like I personally think that of all the people who've made a contribution to mental health in America in the last 30 years, Oprah is probably number one Mm -hmm. in terms of mass beneficial impact. Just to think about that. So If you're looking for something therapeutic that you're not able to get on your own, then it makes sense to reach for greater resources, net it against the cost of that. Mm, And that mm -hmm. is very practical, and yet that's what it really matters for. So, for example, if you're able to accomplish your therapeutic purpose by listening to Tara Brock or this podcast or reading a book or watching a TED Talk, Mm -hmm. then that's great. Or or speaking with your minister, frankly, or your rabbi or your best friend. Or frankly, uh, as we're going to post at some point, I think soon, if you have a rescue horse and you go out and you tell your troubles to your rescue horse and your horse is sympathetic and present with you, if that's therapeutic, that's good. If your therapy is walking on the seashore, and looking up at the stars, great. And if that's not doing it for you, then you think about what the next level might be. So typically uh, people come to a formal therapeutic uh, situation, which can be done to some extent through coaching. Coaching tends to be focused on present moment issues. What's happening these days? How could you be more organized? What would help you be more confident at work? Maybe there's a little coaching related to your your partner, even parenting coaching. Eh, Great, 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 great stuff. 
I'm on the one hand biased toward, I would say, or tilted toward, if you're going to work with people around deep issues, you ought to know what the heck you're doing because you're playing with fire. These are real people. You really want to, first of all, do no harm. Classic Hippocratic principle on the one hand. On the other hand, I think there are a lot of good therapeutic conversations that occur with people that are not licensed therapists, including coaches and others who are spiritually oriented, yoga teachers, mindfulness trainers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm not, I think people can be overly fixated on guilds and we've seen a growing rise of what it could be called guildism, I think, in professional psychology in the last 10, 20 years, which mm, has in part mm-hmm. been driven by so-called evidence-based practices and, and procedurizing practice and formalizing it and so forth. I think that's kind of problematic on the one hand. On the other hand, I can tell you, people walk in my door, I know what I'm doing, <laughs> you know, which is a good thing. Yeah. You know, my rule of thumb is I want to work with people that are as good at what they do as I am at what I do, whatever mm-hmm. that might be. So, you know, the plumber walks in her door. I respect them because I have no idea how to fix that stuff. They know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You want to work with someone who knows what they're doing rather than someone who's sort of floundering around. Yeah, totally. So to put a bit of a bow around some of the things that you're saying so far here, the first thing is that there are a lot of different things that can be therapeutic, even if they're not therapy. And if your needs are being met by those forms of therapeutic communication, you're good to go. You probably don't need to get in the room in a formalized setting with somebody else. But if there's a shortfall somewhere, okay, that's a circumstance where it makes sense to maybe seek out a true mental health professional. Yep. Inside of the family of mental health professionals, you're now making an allusion to different kinds of people, a coach versus a psychologist versus a psychiatrist versus a something else. So can we kind of dig into those terms there for a second? What distinguishes a coach Mm -hmm. from a therapist? Yeah, the world of psychotherapy is regulated for the sake of the consumer, much as medical practice or law are regulated. and within the broad regulated area of who is allowed to do therapy for pay Mm. and who is allowed to use that word, psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is a protected word. So I'll just go through this. This is a pretty standard structure. I'm speaking of California. Most of this is regulated at the state level. There's some variation across states, but it's getting more and more consistent across states. And I should add provinces in in Canada because there's a growing coordination of what happens in Canada as well as in America. And as an aside, I know that about 30% of the people who listen to this podcast do not live in the United States. So there we are. your local rules and laws and regulations yeah. may vary. So that's this is all offered inside of the context of yeah. where we happen to live. That's right. So who's allowed to treat psychopathology or who's allowed to treat mental illness? So now we're in the frame of a medical model. That tends to be the way it's framed, right? And so inside that framework then, which is all about what are you allowed to say you can do with people and take money for? We have, first of all, physicians. Their license includes what could be called therapeutic or counseling type conversations, even without being a psychiatrist. Second, ministers. Many ministers are allowed to have conversations with people that have a therapeutic quality to them in the frame of being a rabbi or a minister or a a priest of some sort, okay? 
Interesting. Now, narrowly more in the mental health field, we have psychologists, we have marriage and family therapists, and licensed clinical social worker. Those are kind of the three major distinctions in California. You find comparable distinctions elsewhere, like there's a license, I think in some states on the East Coast, LPC, licensed professional counselor. So in most cases, at least in California, the scope of the license is the same. So someone who is, uh, has a master's degree and let's say a, master, a marriage and family therapy license has the same scope of practice that they're allowed to engage in as I do as someone with a PhD and who's a licensed psychologist. I think a licensed clinical social worker, LCSW, is pretty much the same. They too have a broad license. There are some details about how people get trained and what they tend to be oriented toward and who you tend to end up with if you choose one of those licenses or another. But those are essentially five licenses that allow people to do psychotherapy with people, physician, Mm -hmm. minister, psychologist, marriage and family therapist, and licensed clinical social worker. As a detail, uh, people with an EDD who function more in educational counseling framework also are often able to do psychotherapeutic activities with people. It, you're an educational psychologist. It tends to be a little more restricted in what you can do in terms of the state and all the rest of that. So if you're looking for, from a consumer standpoint, if you're someone who is looking for a therapist, those are the kind of licenses you're looking for. Okay, that's great. That's a great framework to kind of operate in here. And implicit in what you're saying, as near as I can tell, is that inside of that mental health field, those three primary licenses that you mentioned, each of them can deal with a broad variety of things. And sort of implicit in that is what really matters more is the fit of practitioner to client than Mm -hmm. the fit of license to client. Because all of those three licenses can kind of be used for a variety of different needs. Is that more or less accurate? In terms of the scope of practice, yes. So in my view, if you're looking for someone, the license per se is the secondary matter. What's primary is the level of functioning of the person you're going to see. How sane are they? Mm. How deeply practiced are they? How soulful are they? How big is their heart? How vast is their experience? Are they caught up with their own material? What's their level of functioning? That's a major variable that shapes therapeutic outcome. Second major variable is in what environment, and I think this is the most important variable of all, in what environment, with what kind of relationship, with what kind of person are you, the client, going to be most motivated in and engaged with yourself? Because of all the variables, that's the one that's going to matter the most. How much skin do you have in the game? How much are you going to get engaged with your own therapy? That's really important. So as a detail, for some people, they're going to want a therapist who is fairly reserved and operates with what could be called therapeutic neutrality. And they're going to, certain kind of clients are going to feel better if their therapist is very not intervening much, not very interventionist, not making a lot of comments, kind of a space in which they can explore themselves with some encouraging questions and some warm-hearted, as Carl Rogers put it, unconditional positive regard Mm -hmm. on the part of the therapist. Okay, fine. 
Other people, they're going to want a therapist who mixes it up with them, who's engaged, who's self-disclosing, who asks provocative questions without being a jerk about it, who's willing to offer suggestions. Like, you really maybe ought to think about this or what do you think about that? Uh, probing deeply, you know, so that they, the client feels more gripped by the process. So it, it's okay to look for a variation of people. Another thing to think about in terms of who you're looking for is, in my view, now I'm going to give you my opinion here a little bit, mm -hmm. you want to feel understood quickly. By the end of the first session, in my opinion, you want to feel that the therapist gets you, mm. that they actually have a feeling for who you are, what's happening in your mind. They're not totally puzzled by you. They, you, feel, you want to feel heard. You want to feel deeply heard in an authentic kind of way. So they're starting to maybe complete a sentence or two for you. The questions they're asking reveal that they are really getting you. Maybe they're uh, saying back to you what they're hearing you say. They're, they're kind of doing what's called empathic mirroring, say. And you want to feel that, wow, they're right on it. Or in fact, actually, they're getting at a level that's deeper than what you said. It may be even deeper than you're personally aware of yourself. And yet, as soon as they say it, you realize, whoa, that's really true and useful for me to recognize. That's a good thing. You also want to feel that they are into it. They're motivated. They want to help you. Because to go see a therapist, it's expensive, it takes time, and it's got an opportunity cost. You're there for a reason. You want to gain in some way. Mm. Now, I'm going to talk in a little bit. I'm sure we'll have conversation for us about what are different kinds of goals to have in therapy and why are people doing it and, you know, it gets at what the aim is. But if you're there in good faith as a client, you're there for a reason. <laughs> you know? So you want to feel that your therapist is engaged with you in that reason. They want to get something done, right? Uh, rather than kind of phoning it in or lollygagging around. That's my two cents here. The last thing, I think, is you want to feel that your therapist is at least as wise as you are. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, if you're wiser than they are, there's some value in just having a formal occasion, let's say once a week, where you go in and you discover your truth with someone who doesn't get in your way. All right, there's a place for that. but. It's even better to feel like your therapist has deep insight into the human mind and they have a lot of experience and they've been down this road before. Maybe you're there to grapple with them about a certain kind of an issue. So now I'm going to get into why people go to therapy. Maybe I'll just talk about that. One major category is that someone just wants to do an exploratory journey in their own psyche. They've never done that. And they think it would be really interesting to have greater self-knowledge. Perfectly legitimate purpose. Okay. Second kind of purpose is someone has a practical issue they're dealing with and they'd love some neutral in the sense of someone who doesn't have a, a material interest in it themselves. You know, they're there for the client, which goes back to, again, how do you know you're with a good therapist? Another way to know it is that you're with someone who's there for you. You need to create a frame with them, you know, pay them or show up on time, don't be a jerk and so forth. But inside that frame, they're there for you. If they're disclosing about themselves, their purpose in doing that is to serve you. They're not flirting with you. <laughs> they're not trying to sell you on their program. 
They're not trying to get you to go see their partner for medical advice. They're there for you. You want to really feel that, right? Okay. So second major purpose in going to see a therapist is you've got a problem. You don't know how to talk to your teenager. Your partner is saying, you know, I'm not really happy in this relationship. And what are we going to do about it? Or maybe you're in a life transition, or maybe you're grappling with an illness of some kind, or you've had a parent who's dying, or you're dealing with your siblings in the care of an aging parent, and it's really contentious. So here too, it's useful to go to see someone who's been down this road before, who may have general skills that relate to the road you're on, if not very specific skills in working with people who, let's say, have issues in raising a a child. Third major reason to go see a therapist after exploration of self-discovery and concrete issue is something is making you suffer. So technically, psychopathology has to do with two kinds of issues, subjective distress and impairment of functioning, or both, right? And so maybe there's something that's causing you significant distress and or impairing your functioning, like chronic anxiety or low-grade background depression you've never really been able to shake, or chronic feelings of inadequacy, compulsivity, you're phobic about something, or you're addicted to something, or you're, you've got a soft addiction to something, but it's problematic for you. You're there to deal with some kind of internal long-standing issue. Maybe you're dealing with the legacy of trauma. Mm. You manage it okay, but you know it's catching up with you. Or maybe you were mistreated, even abused as a kid. You managed, you got through it. But now you have a child of your own who's also a preschooler or also a teenager when the wheels came off in your own life and it's stirring up a lot of those issues for you. So now it's time to deal with that. So that's, I think, the third major reason people go see a therapist. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. If you're like me, you've probably started to pay closer attention to your long-term health as you've aged. Turning 35 was a bit of a wake-up call for me, and I'm always looking for good sources of information, because it's often really difficult to separate fact from fiction when it comes to our physical health. We had Dr. Tim Spector on the podcast a few years ago. He's a professor of genetic epidemiology and the scientific co-founder at Zoe, and the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is truly one of the best resources out there when it comes to this stuff. With the help of world-leading scientists, they help you make smarter health choices every week. And you don't have to just take my word for it. Avid podcast fan Stephanie's Apple Review says the Zoe Science and Nutrition podcast is a life-changing, 
science-based, myth-busting podcast. That's a must-listen for anyone who eats food and wants to understand how it affects their body. With the Zoe Science and Nutrition Podcast, you can join Stephanie and millions of others transforming their health. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney Show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years. And the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast. But while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. I think that's a great summary of the reasons that people might end up in the room with somebody else. And yeah. just to kind of put a flag in one of those really quickly that I think is really interesting, and we've talked about it a little bit, but may get into it more at some future day. We talked about this a little bit with Dr. Jim Gordon, about the legacies of trauma and the yeah. way that hereditary trauma can actually alter mm. the physical structure of your body on a genetic level. Yeah. I don't know if I've seen necessarily that inside of my personal friend group, but what I have definitely seen are a lot of people who were feeling totally great, and they had some residual traumatic experience that happened in their childhood, yeah. but they weren't really touching it. It was in the distant past. It happened a long time ago. They'd found ways to cope, whatever it was. And then they entered a new environment. And that environmental change started to activate some of that old material that was in their latent past that they thought was kind of dead and buried. And you're speaking to that here in terms of a, a new parent who has a kid and all of a sudden their childhood material is activated by that process. Or you walk into a new social environment and all of a sudden there are echoes of the distant past and that material gets reactivated. Those are circumstances where it can be really useful to talk to somebody about that material and get some useful tools for unraveling from it. So I just wanted to kind of point that out. Oh, it's super well said for us. And it, it also allows me to make a point that of the three loosely distinct reasons for going to see a therapist, they often intertwine. Mm -hmm. And sometimes what starts out as a one-time session or a, you know, a handful of sessions for some situation that a person's in can morph into a broader form of self-discovery. Or when you put out the immediate fire of whatever the issue is, a person starts to realize, wow, it would be good for me to develop a fire department mm -hmm. <laughs> over time mm -hmm. to deal with, let's say, my tendency hypothetically toward prickly irritability when I feel let down by another person that has echoes of what happened for me in school as a kid or in my family as a kid. Great. So you've spoken kind of generally here about mm -hmm. the different styles of interaction in the room and different kinds of people, sort of softer intervention versus, you know, more direct intervention, a, a chattier therapist versus yeah. a more passive therapist. But inside of those kind of general mm -hmm. families that you're describing, 
there are pretty specific categories of therapy that people do. Two of the big ones are psychodynamic Mm -hmm. versus CBT. Those Mm -hmm. are sort of the two big families that exist, at least in the United States, I would imagine abroad Yeah, there's several others, but those are major distinctions. Mm -hmm. And there are many others, as you're alluding to here, whether it's behavioral or mindfulness-based or somatic or whatever else that people get up to in the room. Mm -hmm. So I think that it might be helpful here to describe some of those different families and talk about kind of what their basic method is and why people who do them think that they're useful, certainly at the level of CBT and psychodynamic and maybe weaving one or two others in here as well. Yeah. First, I'll say that a large fraction of therapists, certainly in America, are integrative and eclectic. Yeah. Functionally. Totally. Or or to put it a little Mm -hmm. differently, a lot of therapists, and I'd probably include myself among them, we think developmentally and psychodynamically, and we act cognitively, behaviorally, with some mindfulness and relational elements Mm -hmm. tossed into the brew. Sometimes bringing in more somatic approaches as well, if not also as part of a therapy, naming that people can do things, if not encouraging them to do things on the side, like hypothetically take a yoga class to relax more, sit a one-day retreat to practice your mindfulness, or take up exercise (laughs) or or swing dance. So really what, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So what you're really saying here is that there are these kind of firm categorical distinctions that exist at an intellectual level, but practically speaking, the lines get a little fuzzy. Yeah, someone made a point to me a long time ago, I thought it was really right, which is, what therapists say they do is, let's say, five feet wide in terms of heterogeneity and diversity, how they talk about what they do. What they actually do is about a foot wide. Mm. There's about a foot's worth of variation in what people actually do who are reasonably good. And I should add that it's interesting. There's this classic version of the opening line, I think, from Anna Karenina. All happy families are alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Mm-hmm. Or a different way of putting it is that as people move toward excellence, they converge on a standard. If you look at all the various ways a bunch of kids in a third grade gymnastics class are, there's a lot of variation. If you look at the variation, though, at let's say Division I college gymnastics teams, much less variation. Same with therapists. When people are just starting out, including myself. And I was like a wild man. I can't believe people let me practice on them in a way. (laughs) Just all over the place. Because you're learning, right? Even if you have some reasonable talent, you know, you're learning. But over time, I think a gifted psychoanalyst, a gifted cognitive behavioral uh, therapist type person, a gifted ACT therapist, acceptance and commitment therapy, a gifted transpersonal therapist, they're going to kind of feel fairly similar. Sure. Especially if you kind of close your eyes, you know. And, yeah. You know, maybe one has a Buddha on the shelf, one has a picture of Freud on the shelf. I don't know. But when you're actually doing it with them, they're really quite similar. Like even Freud, supposedly. Uh, psychoanalysis is one of the pure forms. But by all accounts, how he actually was with his clients was more divergent. He was Pretty more free form. Yeah. He was more natural. He was more human then you would know from the formalities, let's say, of psychodynamic Mm -hmm. approaches. And that's probably true for other approaches too. So 
the methodology that somebody might use in the room could have a lot of differences to it. I would imagine that somebody who's sort of in a more quote unquote traditional psychodynamic approach of client sits directly across from yep. the therapist, you talk about the, you unravel the material, whatever it is, could vary in presentation quite dramatically from somebody who's taking a really somatic approach to the experience. But there are key kind of cornerstone elements that would have a lot of similarity. Here's where I want to talk about the research on therapeutic outcome, Mm -hmm. which is really interesting. So on average, therapeutic results are moderate to high moderate in the metrics of what are called effect sizes in which treatments are evaluated. Could you break that down a little bit? What do you mean by that? Because that was a lot of jargon right there. <laughs> Let me start over. Okay. So how do scientists say, yeah. evaluate whether an intervention is helpful? So is psychotherapy for anxiety helpful? Is medication for anxiety helpful? Is doing a meditation training program that's eight weeks long, is that helpful? So these things are evaluated. So classically, you have the intervention Then you have the control group, ideally an active control group, because that's like normal life. So we're trying to detect effectiveness over a period of time for different populations with different issues. All right, Mm -hmm. that's how it's kind of done. And it's relatively easy, especially if you have a large sample, to get statistically significant differences Hmm. between, let's say, the intervention group, the treatment group, and let's say the control group. Statistical significance is pretty easy to get. The question is, how significant is the significance? How big an impact does it actually have? And then it gets very interesting. So for example, I'm going to say this kind of loosely, a lot of research shows that the average result of psychotherapy is about 06 effect sizes. And people can look up what that means. The bottom line is that's a moderate to high moderate benefit on average. That's a good benefit. So what goes into that benefit? Is there any significant difference between types of treatment? No. Is Hmm. there any significant difference between years of experience? No. Wow, Weird. that's really interesting. Yeah, crazy stuff. It is called the cuckoo effect or something. What is it? You know, like from Alice in Wonderland. Everyone's mm-hmm. a winner. All the people will get prizes. Like the do or the dodo effect. I don't know what it's called. The point is, it drives people crazy in psychotherapy research. On the other hand, it does suggest that there are factors that seem to account for yeah, a lot of so variation. To, to ask an obvious question yeah. here, if the experience of the practitioner doesn't really matter and the methodology yep. doesn't really matter. Yep. What matters? Exactly right. Yeah. Different factors get teased out and they entwine with each other. I named two at the very beginning that I think are very uh, central and they're foundational to some of the factors that are identified. Mm-hmm. And the two I named so far, level of functioning of the therapist, level of commitment of the client. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. One of the factors that's, that's named is the so-called therapeutic alliance. You know, to what extent do you feel heard by your therapist? To what extent do you feel like you're on the same page? Well, that therapeutic alliance, to some extent, is going to be shaped by the level of functioning of the therapist and the motivation of the client. Obviously, the greater the level of functioning of the therapist, the greater the motivation of the client, there's more likely to have a strong alliance. I've also known situations where there was a so-called strong alliance 
oh, I feel like my therapist really understands me. And yet from the outside, you can see that this person is just circling the drain. Mm. You know, they're doing laps around that track. But it's like you- But they're not going anywhere. Yeah, Yeah. their spouse or friends just stare at them and like, you've been going to that person for years and what's the point, Mm -hmm. right? Now, maybe the point is, and this is an important point, preserving your level. Because were it not for that treatment, maybe the individual would be sinking Mm. slowly Mm. into the sunset. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing to think about. Holding your ground can be the best you can do. Yeah, absolutely. And to offer something else that I think could be a factor at play here is that I think often of the analogy that you told us when we were kids about breakfast, how the chicken is involved, but the pig is committed. (laughs) You know, if you think about uh, ham and eggs in this example, the, the chicken's involved, but the pig, the pig is committed. I apologize to any vegetarians in the uh, audience who might be listening to this one. But I think about that a little bit with therapy. Yeah. If you buy a self-help book, you're spending $20 and 10 hours of your time. If you really engage with it, maybe 20, maybe 50. But 50 is kind of the upper bound. If you're going to therapy, you're committed, man. Particularly if you engage with a pretty typical uh, six-week to six-month engagement with the therapeutic process. Six months would be kind of on the long side. And I just think that if you're somebody who has taken the time to look at themselves and go, wow, there's something here that is worth me stepping into an office and making a real active engagement and commitment with for a set period of time, that itself is such an indication that you're toward the high end of the range of people who want to actually deal with their problems and investigate their material, much more so than somebody who simply buys a self-help book, not to bash self-help books. We've written a We've self-help written a, book. Yeah, yeah a like, really good one called Resilient. buy our, our self-help book. It's a great book. <laughs> I'm not trying to take a dump on that. <laughs> I'm just being real about the level of engagement a person needs to have to engage in these two different ways of approaching their mind. And if you're in the family that's going to therapy, then in terms of effect size, it makes sense that you would be on the high end of it. We're starting to get a little bit more into topics related to what to do in the actual room in the process of therapy. That's what I want our next episode on this topic to be dedicated to. We've been talking for a little while here. We're running a little bit long. But before we close this episode, so we can take what you just said as maybe a little teaser for what we'll get into in the future. Before we close the episode, I do want to hit some quick headlines, like very, very quick cliff notes on these different kinds of therapy. Because we've danced around, we've said, eh, maybe it doesn't matter that much, or eh, you know, different things work for different people. But I do think that there are people who, frankly, think about conventional therapy and they go, eh, that's just not for me. And I think a lot of people are scared off by that trad psychodynamic approach of a person sitting on the couch. And so I think that it would be a little bit helpful just to talk about some of the big families of approaches and what the people who practice those modalities kind of do, functionally speaking. So if we can maybe very, very quickly run through a couple of those, I'd like to start with psychodynamic. Sure. And can you just give a couple bullet points on sort of what that is or what that looks like? There are semester-long classes in this question of what are the different psychotherapies and what are their models and how do they work. Here's my really, really short version of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to do it kind of historically. So beginning with psychoanalysis, 
there's a focus on inner conflict, unconscious processes, and the impact of early childhood experiences, as well as a lot of other things. Building on that with major players like Jung and Adler and others, we have the pendulum swinging the other way with Skinner and folks like that into pure behaviorism. Who cares about the unconscious? Who cares about inner conflict? Who cares about childhood? It's all about behavior and rewards and punishments that shape behavior. Then moving more into the 50s and 60s, certainly in the West, especially in America, we have the dialectic pendulum swinging the other way, humanistic psychology, Abraham Maslow, Carl Rogers, as well as transpersonal elements of psychology, not coincidentally uh, co-occurring in the 60s and 70s with the movement of Eastern contemplative traditions, Zen, mindfulness, spirituality coming into the West. So then we've got this humanistic swing, and then it swings again, coming back into cognitive behavioral approaches, what's sometimes called the cognitive revolution. So we have people like Aaron Beck, coming in with cognitive therapy. What we need to do is not so much shape behavior, but we need to shape beliefs. People are unhappy because of maladaptive beliefs. For example, Freud might say, you're unhappy because you have unresolved childhood issues with your mother. Hmm. Skinner might say, you're unhappy because you're acting like a fool. You need to act more effectively. Carl Rogers might say, Or Abraham Maslow might say, you're unhappy because you're not living an authentic life in tune with your whole being and actualizing yourself. And then Aaron Beck with a cognitive therapeutic approach might say, you're unhappy because you believe things that are catastrophizing and untrue and making you feel miserable and do crazy stuff. All right. Then we have the mindfulness approach coming in most recently that says, you're unhappy because you're struggling with your own mind. And if you could go to the meta level, if you could pop above your mind, and instead of trying to fix it with improving your cognitions or engaging a bunch of humanistic, self-loving things, although there's a lot of harmony between humanistic approaches and mindfulness approaches, um, you'd be happier. You don't need to resolve your early issues with your mom. Just hold it all with mindful spaciousness and you're going to be good to go. Now, I'm overly simplifying, obviously. But so then we have recent therapies such as ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy. We have mindfulness-based cognitive therapies of different kinds. We have mindfulness-based approaches to prevent relapse after depression. And that's kind of the major clusters along the way. If you look at Wikipedia, I think at this point, there are over 200 named therapies there. We have some that are more relational. We have many that are more somatically oriented. I mean, you can go back to Reich, Wilhelm Reich, and talk about somatic approaches. And then we have recent versions of those, bioenergetics, other things coming up through the 70s, and more recently oriented, somatically emphasized approaches, especially for trauma. And then most recently to finish it, we have a growing interest in psychedelic-aided therapies. Mm. So there's a lot going on here and a lot of different things that people can do. 
I think that's a great summary of a big body of knowledge. It was a great summary. <laughs> like there, there's speed. a speed. Yes, there, there's a lot of there there. And I think that what I really want to highlight here is I think there is a certain kind of person and I've had conversations with a certain kind of person. And there have been times in my life where I probably was this certain kind of person who looks at therapy as a sort of one-size-fits-all endeavor, where it's you, it's the therapist, you're in a small room, you're sitting on the chair, and you're really plumbing into the depths of your psyche. That is absolutely the kind of baseline version of what therapy looks like. But inside of that, there is enormous variation. And if you are a more somatically oriented, in-the-body, physicalized person, you can find a therapist for that. If you're more of a spiritually aligned person, you can find a therapist for that. If you're somebody who really wants to change your behavior on a fundamental level, you can find a therapist for that. And if you're somebody who has deep-rooted trauma in your childhood and you need to express it out through the lens of the body, you can find a therapist for that. So truly, regardless of what you're looking for, you can almost certainly find somebody who is skilled at operating inside of that modality. So don't let the sort of traditional Hollywood depiction of what therapy looks like prevent you from getting in the room with somebody who could potentially really help you out. Great way to saying. And I want to unfortunately add a few other things for those so people can know it's out there. Family systems that takes into account family of origin as well as often will treat the family. Then there's something called internal family systems, Richard Schwartz, where you're kind of working with the internalization of family constellation, it could be called. There are also therapies that are really informed in a more socially situated way, such as feminist therapy or therapies that are much more attentive to the ways in which structural forms of oppression, discrimination, prejudice have uh, mental health consequences for people that are landing inside the mind of a person, but the origin of that suffering or that issue inside the person is in social forms of prejudice, discrimination, racism, and so forth. That There are many, many wonderful approaches for addiction issues of different kinds, addiction and recovery, sobriety-oriented therapies. There's eco-therapies, like you know, going in, in wilderness, there are specific practices like EMDR and other yeah. methodologies that people use. There is a lot of stuff out there yeah. is kind of our, our ballpark summary of this big territory. Uh, the internet is your friend. So if you want to learn about this in more depth than we can possibly do during even a one-hour podcast episode, you really can. And those resources truly are at your fingertips for free in most places. So I think that that's a good place to bring this part of this conversation to a close. We've covered a lot of ground in this episode. And during our future parts on this conversation around therapy and the therapeutic process, we're really going to get into what actually happens in the room between you and somebody else, some of the ways you can go about finding the right therapist for you, and maybe even some considerations on how to make this whole mess affordable, if that is possible. So to give a little summary, today we spoke about how to find basically the right therapist for you. We talked about the different modalities of therapy in detail at the end there. 
and alluded to them throughout the conversation. Some of the big distinctions that we made were between psychodynamic therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. Those are kind of the two macro families, but inside of them and weaving between them and around them are all these other ways to approach different kinds of solutions to the issues that you might be facing. And that's kind of a good big picture way to think about it. We talked about some of the reasons that somebody might want to go into the room. You named three that generally stimulate somebody toward talking with somebody. But for me, what I think I really want to bring people's attention toward is that, as you said at the very beginning of the conversation, there are a lot of ways to have a therapeutic interaction with somebody that lies outside of therapy. But when those therapeutic interactions are no longer solving the issues that you feel are kind of underlying your life in a persistent way, that's when it makes sense to really seek professional help. Speaking of professional help, you named different categories of mental health practitioners. The point you made underneath that was that although different people have different licenses and different specialities, in general, the scope of practice for most of these things is pretty broad. And what really matters much more is the fit between the client and the practitioner than the practitioner's license itself. Finally, one of the big conversations that we got into today was about therapeutic outcome and about what actually impacts therapeutic outcome and the outcome of therapy versus an antidepressant and what are the things that contribute toward that therapeutic outcome. One of the things that we really landed on was fit between practitioner and client, and then also, frankly, the client's investment in getting the most out of therapy, which is what we're going to cover in detail during the second part of this conversation. So thank you for hanging in with this one today. I hope that people found it really useful. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it. If you would rate it and leave a review and hopefully even a positive review through the platform of your choice, and you can also subscribe to it. If you're interested in following us on social media, I always include a lot of links to our various social platforms in the description of today's episode. And doing that, subscribing and following us is really right now one of the best ways to support the podcast. So until next time, thanks for listening.